look, we don't have any money. I said, but I'll tell you what, we can't sell the wine and we got a lot of it. We'll give you wine for your next fundraiser. Hey, maybe it'll loosen some people up. They'll write a bigger check. Or maybe you could auction the wine off and uh, buy some swings and slides and sandboxes with the money. And uh, he took the wine kind of begrudgingly and we didn't hear from him again. But when the reports came out at the end of the month, boom, sales had taken off in his neighborhood, in the stores where we had placed it. And we thought, wow, this is interesting. I wonder if this would work in another neighborhood. So we went to another neighborhood and we found out that they were trying to raise funds to clean up a creek. And so we gave them uh, wine to use at their fundraiser. Only this time we told them where the stores were in their neighborhood. So we got a little better at this. And every time we do it, we get better at it. And so it worked there. And so we do this in neighborhood after neighborhood and Barefoot Wine builds its way across the country without commercial advertising because supporting local worthy causes turns out to be a much more targeted and effective way from a business standpoint, let alone from, you know, a social moral standpoint, but from just from a business standpoint. These are people who live in the neighborhood. Thank you for listening. This is Brett Trainer, your host for Hardwired for Growth, a podcast where we strive to help entrepreneurs and business owners not only grow their businesses, but scale them. We do this by having conversations with industry experts and the founders who have successfully scaled their own businesses. On this episode, we welcome the highly engaging power couple of Michael Houlihan and Bonnie Harvey to the program. Michael and Bonnie are the founders of Barefoot Wine, America's number one wine brand. Their New York Times bestseller, The Barefoot Spirit, is now required reading in more than 50 schools of entrepreneurship. In this supersized episode, Michael and Bonnie share their remarkable journey from a laundry room of a rented farmhouse to the boardroom of the world's largest wine company, E&J Gallo, and how that journey helped pave the way for future endeavors and the creation of a new category of audiobooks called Audio Theater. This episode was a lot of fun, and I almost broke it into a couple of parts, but I couldn't figure out the best place to, to break the episode, so enjoy. The key lessons in growth, you know, why the barefoot spirit equates to an entrepreneurial mindset, as they call it, West Coast style. Why not being an expert or an insider and allowed them to ask dumb questions to break out of the traditional, this is how it's always been done mentality in the wine industry. How creating consistency in their wine and product was a differentiator to the current model. How and why they leveraged outsourcing and partners to scale their business. And how leveraging grassroots tactics at the community level and brand building became the key driver for their growth. Before I take you on to the intro, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you like, subscribe, and share the podcast on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform so we can help others discover the program. Also, please make sure to check out the free resources page on brettrainer.com forward slash resources for downloads, promos, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter. Now, on to the intro. Welcome back. You're listening to Hardwired for Growth, a podcast dedicated to helping entrepreneurs and business owners who are looking for sustainable and scalable growth strategies, led by your host, Brett Trainer. Michael, Bonnie, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're so happy to be here, Brett. Yeah, great to be here, Brett. Uh, it's my pleasure to have you, and I'm super excited to take a couple of paths with you. One, right, your, your growth journey with Barefoot Wines, which I, I find fascinating. Then two, I want to dig into your, your newest venture with, with the eBooks or a, a modern twist on the eBooks. So, you know, to help to get us started, why don't you, you know, just give us a little bit uh, what you two are working on today, and then we'll, we'll head back in time a little bit. Sure. So when we sold Barefoot Wine, our staff and our buyers and our suppliers kept saying, you know, you guys have a certain way of doing business. You ought to write a book about it. And we thought, okay, you know, we put it off. We put it, finally, we wrote the book and we wrote the book like most business books, you know, the three things you got to do, the five things to never do and the 20 things your customer wants from you. And it was just so boring. We threw it right in the trash. And then we were, the entire manuscript, then we were flying to Washington <laughs> DC to give a talk back there and uh, Bonnie's sitting a couple of seats away from me because we couldn't sit together on that flight. And she's laughing and raising a lot of attention. 
And I looked at her like, what the heck? And she says, I found our author. I know the guy who's going to write this book. And it was Rick Cushman. And he was a, a wine and, and a food writer for the Sacramento Bee, a Stanford grad, uh, a relatively young guy, real smart, you know. Uh, and a great sense of humor. He talked to the average person. Instead of writing about wine to make it sound mysterious, he made it understand, just like we had done with Barefoot Wines. So, you know, we thought, here, this guy's a fellow traveler. So we met him. And, uh, you know, he came over every week for a year. We'd spend two days together. We'd give him our stories. Uh, he'd take the stories down. Uh, we'd have dinner. We'd drink a bottle of wine or two. Uh, and his body, as Bonnie says, you know, uh, what, a year later and a uh, hundred bottles of wine later, we had our book. <laughs> uh, except that the book was about eight inches thick. And, uh, you know, I said, well, how are you going to get that down to one airplane ride? And he says, well, he says, they asked the sculptor who was standing in front of the block of marble how he was going to make the image of the king. And he said, well, that's easy. I'll just cut away everything doesn't look like the king. And so that means you have to know what your message is. And so the barefoot spirit, the message is really a message of empathy, putting yourself in the other guy's shoes, and taking the golden rule and really making it practical from a business standpoint. You know, how do you treat your vendors? How do you treat your employees? How do you treat your buyers? Well, we wrote the book and it became a New York Times bestseller. And uh, we sold thousands of, uh, of copies of it. And uh, the sales kind of dropped off and we were still speaking. We noticed after a couple of years that people started showing up with buds in their ears. It was like this new fad. Everybody was listening to something. And so we went up to one of them and we said, what are you listening to? Is it hip hop? Is it rap? And this lady says, no, I'm listening to war and peace. She said, I've always wanted to read it, but it's too long. And I didn't want to be immobilized. And the guy says, yeah, and I'm listening to a podcast on how to improve my business. And we thought, my goodness, isn't this something, you know? I said, we're missing out on an audience. Yeah. We want to get our message of what it's like to take a business from absolutely nothing to one of the fastest growing brands in the nation. We want to get that message to other entrepreneurs. And here, we're missing out on this audience. So this new technology uh, happens, basically MP3 technology. And so we said... Let's get some of these audio books and listen to them. And so we did. We started listening to them. And we thought, you know, they're basically being read to you, all the business ones, where a few of the fiction ones were acted out, but they had big budgets behind them. Uh, but almost all of the business books were read to you. So you had to like that narrator. If you didn't like the narrator, you were stuck with them for five to seven hours, right? So we thought, you know, this is this is really something. Let's let's do a book, but let's do it a little differently. One day we were driving across the Arizona desert between Phoenix and Tucson to uh, speak in an event down there, and here comes uh, Prairie Home Companion on uh, oh, public yeah. radio, right? And it's Guy Noir, Private Eye, and they're doing a 1945 style radio show. And they're creating a movie in your mind. So we're driving across the desert and we're totally engrossed in the story because they've got characters, they've got sound effects, they've got music, you know. Uh, and we thought, well, that's what we have to do. We, we have to create a what we call business audio theater. Where, edutainment. Yeah, edutainment. Education and entertainment all wrapped up into one. So instead of somebody just reading it to you, there's scenes, and the scenes have actors, and the actors have action, and the action uh, has results and outcomes, and you're there like a fly on the wall, and you're hearing it, and you're engrossed in it, and there's music and sound effects, so it's very real. Uh, so it's sort of, we call it 3D audio, and so that's what we're into today. We, we created this book called The Barefoot Spirit. It's for sale everywhere that audiobooks are sold. Um, and it's a play. So you're actually hearing Hollywood actors acting out the parts in the events that took place during the creation of Barefoot Wine. And some of them are highs and some of them are lows and some of them are shocking and 
But so, they've all got a message. And they're kind of like cliffhangers. So you can listen to a segment, you know, or uh, an installment or episode. And at the end of that episode, oh, my gosh, you know, are Michael and Bonnie going to go bankrupt? Are they going to get arrested? What the heck is going to happen, Michael and Bonnie? <laughs> or both. You know that the wine is in your fridge, so they made it somehow. So it's, it's an interesting way of engaging folks who want to be mobilized. But we yeah. want to take it a step further, Brad. We want to offer this service to other founders because every founder has a wonderful story to tell. And as the business grows, that story gets lost. And it's really important for all people in the company to understand what the philosophy was, the business principles, and the difficulties that the founder had in starting a company. So now we are offering this uh, business audio theater to founders of companies so we can create. We've got, we've got the cast. We've got the director, we've got the know-how, and we also have an example of our own, the Barefoot Spirit, to show how it's done. So now we're offering that to other business owners so they can tell their story and keep their own business spirit alive in their employees. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And I do want to dive deeper into, you actually stole some of my thunder on a question I had about, Uh-oh. is this just something that, you know, it's okay, you, where you had built kind of this platform for yourselves, but is it something that is now offered to others, which you've kind of teased that a little bit. But um, so I definitely want to dive back into this, but I, if it's okay with you guys, I'd love to take a step back because I think your journey with the, the ebook and the edutainment, which I love, sounds very similar to your journey with, with Barefoot Wines. And I think it would help the audience to understand how you got here today if we kind of went back in time, you know, with your, your origin story and how you got started because you weren't in the wine business when you, when the opportunity presented itself. So if you don't mind, you know, maybe take us back to how did barefoot wine start? (laughs) It, It really was a fluke how it started. Brett, Michael and I both loved Sonoma County. It's the wine country about an hour North of San Francisco, but it wasn't for the wine. It was for the beautiful Hills and the Russian river and, Oh, it's just delightful here. But we had clients, because we were both business consultants, who were in the wine industry. I had a client who was a grape grower, and I started organizing his office for him, and I found out pretty quickly that he hadn't been paid for his grapes for three years. And I said, well, let me take a look at the contract. Let's see what we can do to try to collect these funds for you. And he said, well, I don't have a contract. Well, that's a bit over my head. (laughs) So I said, tell you what, I'm going to give your challenge to my new boyfriend over here, Michael, and see if he can't go out and collect those funds, $300,000. Hey, new boyfriend, why don't you go pick up 300 grand? Yeah, like what happened? Did I fall in love with the daughter (laughs) of the mafia or what? (laughs) And and just think... Yeah, as you say, from the origin story, just think if you hadn't been dating, there wouldn't have been a, a Michael to go see if you can collect. So it's, I'm, I'm always a big believer things happen for a reason. So that's just interesting, that little it's twist not, of fate to get started. It's an incredible set of circumstances and coincidences. Of course, there are no coincidences if you believe like you do. Uh, but let's, let's, let's do. just say outrageous events. Uh, <laughs> so... So I go over there to collect the money to this large winery. And when I get to the gate, the guard stops me and he says, I hope you're not here to collect any money. And I said, well, as a matter it's of a fact. a bad omen. Yeah. <laughs> yes. As a matter of fact, I am. He says, well, you can forget about that. He says, we just declared bankruptcy this morning. You're going to have to take your ticket and wait your turn like everybody else. I went, oh, no. And I thought, you know, am I going to go through with this meeting or not? So I went through with the meeting. And the meeting was going south. The guys that, the, that you know, controlled the company all had secured debt, and her client didn't have any secured debt. He had given them $300,000 worth of grapes on a handshake and, and trusted them. So it didn't look good for the home team. So I look out the window to try to make some small talk, and I see all these tanks. I don't know anything about the wine industry. And I said, what do you got in those tanks? 
And they said, well, we got Cabernet Sauvignon and Sauvignon Blanc wine in bulk. I said, oh, really? He says, they said, yeah, you know, those are like 5,000-gallon tanks. And I said, that's amazing. I look out this other window, and it looks like there's this chrome locomotive in the middle of this giant handball court. And I mean, it's got tracks and everything. And it looks like some kind of a steam engine. And I said, well, what's with the chrome locomotive in the handball court? And they said, well, that's not a, a handball court. That's a clean room. And a bottling room. That's a bottling room. That's where we bottle. And that's a bottling line. You know, it's a, a very complicated piece of machinery. And I said, yeah, well, does it work? And they said, yeah, it works. But we're not doing a lot of bottling right now because we declared bankruptcy. And then it hit me like a chrome locomotive. And I just said, wait a minute. What if you took some of that wine that's in those tanks over there and ran it through that bottling line down there? And instead of paying us in money, you pay us in bottled wine. And we'll come up with a label. We'll come up with a marketing program. We'll find out who the buyers are. You know, how hard could that be, right? How long could that take? (laughs) Ignorance is bliss. But I mean, we were that much closer to the money. As they say, we were an inch closer, not a foot closer. So I told Bonnie, I said, hey, I think, I think we got a solution here. I got a trade anyway. I said, well, that's not going to pay any bills. Now what do we have to do? We've got to get licenses. We've got to find out all we can about wine and what is the market like. And of course, we have to design a label. So and that just, was just the beginning of our... Challenges. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I don't mean to inter- anymore, interrupt, but right? was your your vision at that time we're going into the wine business, or was it still to recoup the costs of the the three hundred thousand that was outstanding? It was very limited thinking. We thought we'll okay. bottle it all up, sell it to the chains, put a few bucks in our pocket, and then go on to our next adventure. Pay off the grower. Oh, don't forget, pay off the grower. <laughs> pay off the grower. Small <laughs> detail. Because. <laughs> He offered us a commission if we could do it. So that was our plan A, right? And, you know, there's a scene in the book that maybe we can play for your audience later uh, where, you know, one of the things you got to do in any business is you got to say, who's going to buy it anyway, right? And under what circumstances, you know, how do I get into the market? You know, what does my product look like? You know, is it legal? What are the legal requirements? What what kind of parts do I need? You know, what kind of credit do I need? And so within six months, we had to answer all those questions because the wine was bottled, but it wasn't sold. And so, you know, wine has a half-life, especially white wine. So we had to move on it rather quickly. So in the process, we made friends in low places, as we like <laughs> to say. So because we were from outside the industry and didn't know any better, we asked people who were like driving pickups, I mean, uh, uh, forklifts and and pickups and pickups and, and big rig trucks. And, you know, they were working as clerks in stores and, you know, on the bottling, on line. the bottling line and warehouse people and, and buyers. And we asked them all the same question, you know, what works and what doesn't work? What have you seen? that works and why does it work? Why does this label sell like crazy and not that one? Right. And so these people had never been asked before. You know, I mean, most of these people were just, they were dumbfounded that anybody would give them the time (laughs) of day, you know, like a truck driver. And the truck driver tell you things about, well, you know, if the boxes are this big, you know, they tend to rattle around and get destroyed on their way to the store. If they're this big, they seem to take the ride a lot better. And maybe somebody else would tell you something about uh, the label. Uh, Bonnie actually got a guy in a bottling line, uh, and that's in the book too, to tell her he was a a bottling line manager. And uh, the guy runs this giant, you know, chrome locomotive. He runs it. It's got thousands of moving parts. There's people climbing all over it. The day that the bottling's going, it's roaring. Everybody's wearing earmuffs. Uh, Earplugs. Earplugs. Yeah, (laughs) things are going. And he told her, well, I'm not an expert, but I can tell you that if you take a look at my label room, I've got all the labels we use, and they're all in cubby holes. And the ones that we that we bottle a lot, we run out of all the time. The other ones, we've got boxes and boxes and boxes of. So he says, let's take a look at the ones that we've got a big supply on. 
because they obviously didn't sell because they're not being rebottled. Imagine he goes about it this way, very common sense, very down to earth. No white collar guy would ever look at designing a wine label this way. Right. So, so he says to us, look at this label. Of course it didn't sell. It has too many curly cues. You can't even see what it is. You can't read it. They're trying to be too fancy. Look at this one. They're trying to be too mysterious. And look at this one. They took the color right to the edge. So when it gets chipped, when it goes into the bottle, it looks like it's, you know, damaged goods and nobody will buy it. And so he goes through it and he tells us what's wrong with these labels in the process. We glean information that is just priceless about what a practical, when I say practical, I mean a label and a package that can get through the distribution system. And all the decisions that are made, a lot of people think, you know, wine or hammers or any product sells because it's a good product or a bad product. You know why it sells? It sells because it's there. It made it. <laughs> right. Hey, can I just ask you a follow-up question on, on that? I'm just curious because that's unbelievable market research that you were doing. And at <laughs> this you. point, are you still, are you, do you know who you're going to be selling this wine to? Or are you still thinking if we can just get it produced, get a good label, we'll sell it? I mean, I'm just curious. It's just remarkable that, you know, how, again, like you said, it's uh, ignorance can be bliss sometimes. But, yeah. you know, the fact that you were heading down this path that nobody had taken before you know, is really interesting. Well, we had in mind plan A, we were going to sell it all to a big chain store. That would be it. We figured we could just go directly to the chain. Well, now we know that's totally impossible. But at the time, that was our plan. And the chain store buyer said, I want the name the same as the logo. I want the shopper, her, to see it from three feet away. I want it to be in plain English, no French, no chateaus, no lakes or rivers. Uh, He said, I want it to be something that people can relate to and something that they can remember. And remember the name the same as the logo will help them remember. So we took all of that information and the information that we got from the bottling line manager and the other people uh, that was were out there doing the hard work, people with dirt under their fingernails, we put it all together and, and it just kind of dawned on me one night and I realized uh, what the label looks like. It was kind of a process of elimination, really. You know, we were eliminating the things that the people uh, who were doing the real work in the industry were telling us didn't, didn't work. Uh, and we were also trying to satisfy this buyer because we went to the buyer and we said, just tell us what you want. And he says, you know, nobody's ever asked me that before. Everybody comes in here. They've already got this package. They've got a program. They've got pricing. You're asking me what I want. He says, okay, I'll tell you. And so he tells us. And in the process of about 37 seconds, And by the way, the part uh, in the book is played by a very snarky Ed Asner, uh, (laughs) who is very much like this, uh, like this buyer who is, who is, you know, he's giving me the time of day. He doesn't want to, he's really busy. Uh, You know, he wonders if I'm crazy or whatever, but he's being nice enough in his own way. It's like the imperfect Buddha, you know, he's right, (laughs) but he's hard to take, right? (laughs) <laughs> right, right. That's awesome. So that's that's how we come up with the label. Um, but we made the mistake that all businesses make, which is they fall in love with their their product, they fall in love with their service, uh, and they think that because of the quality and the price and the you know the the uh, uh, benefits and features that it's going to sell. They think that's all it takes. And of right. course, part of the story, the real message in the story is it takes a lot more. And when you hear the book, you're going to realize, oh my God, it takes a whole lot more, a whole lot more than I even thought. Uh, and so 
here we are being told by this buyer after we did everything the way he said, after we bottled it, just like he said, we present it to him. And he says, well, he says what we're going to hear in the clip a little later, maybe. That's in buyer two. We're going to play buyer one. Oh, okay. But you'll hear it in the store. You'll hear it in the story. Uh, but he says, are you crazy? He says, uh, you know, I can't sell this. He says, you put a foot on the label. He says, nobody's ever put a foot on a label before. He says, what were you thinking? Yeah, what were you thinking? <laughs> are you guys mad? He says, you know, he says, are you going to put, put a million dollars into advertising? You know, if you do, I'll put it in my 200 stores. And we thought, oh, no, we don't even have, you know, we don't have $100 for advertising. You know, we thought we would just bottle this and you'd sell it. He goes, no, no, no. He says, I can't sell anything people don't know. He says, you got to take this and make this a household word. He says, you got to sell it to every mama, papa, every independent. You have to make this a, a, a household word that people know before I'll take it or any other chain or any box store will take it. So much for plan A. Yeah. <laughs> so now into plan B, right? <laughs> right. So now we have to sell it at every corner store. I mean, imagine we thought we had it. You know, we, we thought, well, well, we'll just ask everybody. That was right. We'll get to the right answer, which was true. And uh, we'll, we'll sell it to the buyer. We'll give him exactly what he asked for. No, we had a lot more lessons to learn. Oh, my. And so <laughs> the story is really a story of you get A done, and then you run into a wall, and then you have to do B, and then you run into a wall, and then you have to do C. And after... After about eight or nine of these walls, you realize that entrepreneurship is really all about problem solving. And you solve one problem to create another, see? And the lessons we learned really had to do about being in business and starting off as an entrepreneur. And they weren't so much about the wine industry, although that's the industry that, that we were learning about. But they really pertain to adding business. And that's why we're really excited to share the business lessons that we learned with other people that are going through the start of their own business or the growth of their own business. Because those lessons are painful. They take yes. a lot of time, a lot of money. They cause a lot of stress. And if we can help people succeed faster, then we've achieved our goal. So yeah, here we are. We don't have any money for advertising. And we're selling it to the independence. And they say the same thing that the big buyer said. They said, well, if I put this in here, you know, nobody's ever heard of it. Are you going to advertise it? And we said, well, you know, put it in, uh, it'll sell. And they said, well, we'll put it in, but if it doesn't sell in 90 days, you're out of here. And that would have been a non-starter. There would be no barefoot wine, except for the fact that we get a telephone call just about that time from a, a a uh, neighborhood group in Chinatown in San Francisco of all places. And the guy on the phone says, you're wealthy people. You got a big winery. I'm trying to build a kids after school park. I need $50,000 for swings, jungle gyms, slides, and sandboxes. Can you help me out? And I thought to myself, geez, does this guy have the right number? You know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, and I said, look, we don't have any money. I said, but I'll tell you what, we can't sell the wine and we got a lot of it. We'll give you wine for your next fundraiser. Hey, maybe it'll loosen some people up. They'll write a bigger check. Or maybe you can auction the wine off and uh, buy some swings and slides and sandboxes with the money. And uh, he took the wine kind of begrudgingly and we didn't hear from him again. But when the reports came out at the end of the month, boom, sales had taken off in his neighborhood in the stores where we had placed it. And we thought, wow, this is interesting. I wonder if this would work in another neighborhood. So we went to another neighborhood and we found out that they were trying to raise funds to clean up a creek. And so we gave them uh, wine to use at their fundraiser. Only this time we told them where the stores were in their neighborhood. So we got a little better at this. And every time we do it, we get better at it. And so it worked there. And so we do this in neighborhood after neighborhood. And Barefoot Wine builds its way across the country without commercial advertising because supporting local worthy causes 
turns out to be a much more targeted and effective way from a business standpoint, let alone from, you know, a social moral standpoint, but from just from a business standpoint. These are people who live in the neighborhood. All of a sudden they go, look at this, Barefoot Wine is supporting our cause. And then we went to Southern California. We got involved with the Surfrider Foundation, you know, cleaning beaches, saving the ocean. And, uh, you know, the Delaware Bay Foundation trying to do the same thing on the other side of the country and uh, hundreds of organizations between here and there. And so that's how we wind up building Barefoot Wine. And we build it up. It gets to be over half a million cases. And we start getting phone calls from people who are interested in acquiring the brand because we finally got to the threshold you know, at our price point in our category with our type of business where you become an acquisition target. And today we tell our clients, we ask them, do you know the metrics to become an acquisition target in your business? So that's the short story of Barefoot Wine. And it tells you a little bit about why we're business advisors today and why we're so excited about sharing the lessons we learned because they're universal. I mean, it's it's fantastic. And you can see, as I was listening to you talk about the, you know, the spirit, and I love the fact that you talk about the the problem solving or the entrepreneurial mindset that, hey, there's going to be challenges that pop up. And if you take the approach, hey, we're going to solve problems and keep pushing forward, versus how do we continue to push what I think is the right product into, you know, kind of forcing people into a box of, of what you have. So, the one thing I did want to go back a little bit in when you started reaching, and I love starting with the community, you know, at this point, as you're starting to expand, have you built a team or are you still basically a small operation that's still, you know, bootstrapping this uh, across the state than across the country? Well, the, at the larger we grew, the more people we had to hire. And one thing that we learned early on was that when we uh, expanded into a new territory, we had to have a representative from our company on our payroll out there in that area talking to the distributors, the retail retailers, and the community. We had to find out what they wanted and give it to them. We couldn't be there personally, so we had to hire sales reps whenever we expanded so they could be real hands-on and work with everyone that touched our product along the distribution channel to make sure that it made it to the shelf, that people came in and bought it, and when they did, that the product was replaced. And so, yes, we did have a larger staff, the larger we grew, and we got a little better working in the office, too. All the people in our office were really managers of contracted services. So our marketing manager would work with our outside services, our printer, and go there for checks and make sure everything was just the way that we wanted, that all the colors were right. And our winemaker worked with our contracted services, which was a winery that did the bottling for us, and also worked with growers and all the the different companies that sell wine on the bulk wine market. And she would do all the blends herself and make sure that our host winery would um, do the blends exactly to her specs. And that was really important too, because we wanted a consistent flavor. We thought that the buyers wanted something that was the same and didn't change year after year. Our buyers did. And uh, so she would have a library of all of our samples of past bottlings and she'd open them and make sure that because she had a chemistry background, she knew how to break down the tastes and how she could match the flavors by adding a certain component of this wine and that wine. So we didn't just buy wine and put it in a bottle and put it out there, but we really took control of all aspects of winemaking. We just had it bottled at somebody else's winery. Yeah, one of the uh, things that uh, we see a lot of folks do is when they, they say, oh, I'm going to go into this business or I'm going to go into that business. And then the next thing out of their mouth is, I'll need a truck. I'll need a warehouse. I'll need an office. No, you don't. You know, I'll need <laughs> a production facility. 
And we say, no, you don't need any of that. What you need is you need purchase orders. You need people who (laughs) are saying that they will buy your products. All that other stuff you can farm out. And you don't have to go to China. You can farm it out, you know, right there, wherever you live. Uh, There's people that are in your chamber of commerce who do services for companies like you. And the nice thing about outsourced services, if they don't do it exactly to your spec, you don't have to pay for it. If you do it in-house, you're under a lot of financial pressure to put it out on the market, even if it's mediocre, and that can hurt your reputation. And we've had more than one contractor uh, get stuck with the product that they created for us because it wasn't to our spec. Um, When we started uh, our business, our contracts were only three or four pages long. When we sold our business, they were 37 pages long. You know, you pick up a contract sometime, you go, what is this? You know, why is this contract so long? What's with all these clauses? Well, that's every time that the person who wrote the contract got taken advantage of and said, (laughs) never again, I need a clause to prevent that from happening in the future, or this needs to be better defined, right? And so you get into things like metrics and whatnot. So, um... We got really good at that, and it's really why we're valuable advisors to businesses today, because we can help them really write their contracts in ways that can protect them. And and actually, cop an attitude that says, go ahead, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, you know, shame on me too, right? Yeah. So <laughs> the idea is, let's... Let's make it better. We like to say, what, don't waste a perfectly good mistake. That's right. (laughs) I love that. And it's so, and it's so true. And especially at the time, were you the only ones that were basically looking at consistency of the wine? Were you the first ones that were? Yeah, that was something we were doing. Yes, Brad, I believe that we were. Because so many people that were intimidated by wines once they found Barefoot, they loved it. They loved the label. It felt friendly. They could pronounce every word on the label. And it had this cute foot on it. And they'd grab it and hold the bottle close and say, I love this label. I love this bottle. So they needed something that was the same taste, the same flavor uh, year after year. And they became reliant on it. They'd pick it up. The female shoppers would buy barefoot in the supermarkets eventually when they were shopping for their own weekly groceries and they wanted something that was consistent. They were probably more interested in spinach than they were in vintage. So there was no vintage on our label. So the tip off was when the buyer said, make sure that she can see it from four feet away when she's pushing her cart we said, well, he's talking about a female buyer. So we, we did the research and we found out that the supermarkets like 78% female buyers. Well, these women are buying wine for the week the way they buy sugar or flour or bread or vegetables. It's a staple. Yeah, it's a staple. And they don't want it to taste funny. They don't want to go back and all of a sudden it tastes funny. If it tastes funny, what are you going to say? Oh, that's a new vintage. We're sorry. The elephants got loose in the vineyard this year. That's why it's a little chalky. And she's going to say, I'm sorry. It tastes funny. Goodbye. You know, so you're not going to be able to explain your way out of inconsistent uh, uh, flavor pattern. So we really created Barefoot Wine for the female shopper originally who wanted a dependable, staple product uh, with consistent uh, profile. Yeah, it makes, makes a lot of sense. And I've got two follow-up questions, and I think they're related. And I may have cut you off when you were talking about the first one was uh, the key metrics for the industry, I think, is important. But before you go there, you talked about the original objective was, hey, put some coin in the pocket, pay back you know, the 300000 in grapes. Yeah. At some point, the objective must have changed, right? Did it shift yeah. to, we want to dominate this industry or do we want to get it to a point where we can sell? Which then I think ties back into a, a great lesson on the metrics for the industry for entrepreneurs at, you know, across the board, right? 
So we really fell into this whole business backwards. We were collecting the 300000 for the grape grower, who was my client. But by the time, just before we'd gone to bottling, we'd designed the label, we'd gotten all the licenses in the client's name initially, and uh, done the research. After several months of that, the, the grape grower came to us and he said, you know, I don't know what to tell you, but um, I've got a full-time job as a winemaker, as you know, plus I have this vineyard. I can't take on another business. I guess I'll just have to take the loss. And we go, oh, no, you can't. (laughs) It's too much money, and we've set all this up. And he said, well, I'm sorry, but I can't take on another business. And Michael, being the quick thinker that he is, he said, hey, tell you what, instead of us working for you, you work for us. We'll take the debt. We'll pay you 100 cents on the dollar. We'll take the bottling services and the bulk wine. And, you know, we'll find out what it takes. And, you know, eventually we'll pay you back. You can front us some grapes if we need more grapes to keep this going. You can give us some uh, of your winemaking expertise. He was a very fine winemaker. And it's our business. What do you say? He goes, well, I don't really have much to lose, do I? Well, you've got 300000 but, you know, if you want to <laughs> right. take a chance on keeping it, then, you know, you don't have many choices here. So that's how it became our business instead of our client's business. So it really was a surprise to us <laughs> as well. So to answer the second part of your question about metrics, so we went, okay, so now it's our business. But remember, we thought we were just going to do a transaction and be down the road like some serial entrepreneurs and go on to right. the next one. But then when we find out that we're up against selling every independent and every mama papa, that takes us two years right there and to get into the chains. And then we get into the chains, that takes us about four years to figure out how to get on top of doing business with the chains so that we can expand across the country with a good reputation from the last chain. And so we have to learn all of their procedures and everything else, their forms, you know, their codes, their computer programs, all this stuff. And so we said, well, you know, are we ever going to get out of this business? And we thought, well, you know, let's see if anybody's interested in this. And of course, nobody was interested in it. And, you know, we were selling a couple hundred thousand cases a year and still nobody was interested in it. And so we finally did what we recommend to our clients today, which is we went to lunch with a broker. And the broker is a broker who represents either the buyer or a seller. And he's done a transaction in your category, in your industry, at your price point before and within the last year. So the broker knows it's just like selling your property. What do I sell it for? And the guy says, well, what are the cops? You know, what what does a three-bedroom, two-bath sell for in your neighborhood now? So you go on Zillow and you figure it out. So this is very much like that. So you find out what are the metrics. Well, we were shocked. He came back and he says, well, you're going to have to sell a half a million cases a year before anybody's going to take you seriously because you're a $6 bottle of wine. You know, if you were selling a $90 bottle of wine, maybe you'd only have to sell 20000 and they'd be all over you. But no, at this low price point, you've got to sell over 500,000 cases a year for anybody to take you seriously. And of course, I don't know if Bonnie mentioned this or not, but we were broke, right? So we started (laughs) out, we had to lever the whole thing. We never borrowed money. You know, um, we got a line of credit from our bank. That was was really a smart thing to do. But it took us years to get to that point. And then when we got to that point, we didn't get, we got a few telephone calls, but we had, we had second thoughts. We, at that time, we thought, do we really want to sell it to just anybody? And we thought, no, we want to sell it to somebody who's going to keep the barefoot spirit alive, somebody who is going to protect this label and take it and make it what it should be, which is the Coca-Cola of the American wine business, right? You know, the, the real, you know, this is the American 
approach to everyday people's wine, barefoot. And so there was only one company that we saw out in the marketplace that was doing the same stuff we were doing. Uh, We haven't touched on this yet, but one of the many lessons we learned was that we had to be hands-on I mean, there were days I was the president and CEO of the company, but I was on my hands and knees on a linoleum floor in Tallahassee, Florida, in Publix number 625, (laughs) pricing items. And those items were my own items. And you might say, well, why didn't the clerk in the store do that? Well, he didn't do it. And if he doesn't do it, it won't sell. And if it won't sell, you're going to get discontinued. So you have to do it. We had to go into warehouses and make sure that there was adequate stock because our distributor's representative wouldn't do it. He had too many other brands on his plates. So we wound up doing a lot of other people's work. So if somebody said, you go into the wine business, you're going to wind up doing all this merchandising work, I would have said, well, we could be selling hammers then. That's right. Yeah, we could have been selling hammers. So that was a big wake-up call. and. But when we saw that Gallo, as big as they were, as strong as they were, they were very focused on the store, on, you know, are they in stock? Is it priced right? Are the codes right? Is it getting reorganized? You know, what are are the surrounding brands? You know, how does it look? Blah, blah, blah. And we learned from them and we admired them and we wanted them to acquire us. Got it. So they had similar kind of brand identity, if you will. You cared about the service. You cared about the consistent. You basically cared about the consumer at that point. Absolutely. They cared about keeping their product on the shelf. So the worst customer, everybody talks about customer experience these days. The worst right. customer experience in the world is they fall in love with your product. They go to buy it and they can't buy it. Because it's not there. Yeah. And then the clerk says, oh, they don't make that anymore. Or that's That's, hard to get. That's the easy answer for the clerk. So, you know, buy something else. See? So, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, they're not going to care as much as you do, right? I mean, you guys care more than anybody else is getting paid hourly about your your product. You're the only one that cares. The the owners always care the most. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. So, we fast forward a little bit. You ended up working out a deal with Gallo, right? And exit, well, you didn't actually exit the wine business, right? They, they kept you on as brand consultants for, for Barefoot, right? For a year. Yes, they did. Okay. Because it wasn't clear why Barefoot's sales were growing so quickly and uh, outpacing most other wines. We got top brand of the year a couple years in a row for our growth. And uh, they couldn't understand why. So it took a while for us to explain to them all the nuances that we were doing that really made a difference. And uh, so that's why they'd hired us to, to keep the barefoot spirit alive. And, and barefoot we like can, the term, oh, we like sorry, the, term the barefoot spirit so much that that's what we call our book, the barefoot spirit. It's kind of like the entrepreneurial spirit of West Coast style, you know, it's like, this is this is really getting down to bare feet on the beach, right? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and I think it's a it's actually a really good segue into, you know, as I was listening to this story, it's about consistency, it's about the problem solving, it's about leveraging resources. And now we fast forward to where you kind of you know, talked about the initial version of the book. You know, you wrote it and said, you know what, this isn't what we want to do and threw it out. And then it took another year to, you know, write version 2.0. So I'm already seeing at least two years of work before you even get to the audio version. So I'm seeing that spirit translate not only from the first business, but just the way you guys approach, I'm guessing, not only a second business, but also life, right? Yeah, you got you to gotta be like a pit bull, you know. If you get a bite on something, you just don't let go. Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, and people always say, you know, how do you guys, you know, maintain your tenacity? And we think the fuel of tenacity is uh, is validation. And uh, sometimes we get depressed. We call people up who are early adapters and we said, we say, hey, Mary, would you tell me again why you think this is such a great idea? I really need to hear it again right now. (laughs) It's actually great advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> affirmation, right? You need it. 
Yeah. So let me, let me ask you. So now it, the book, you came out you, with something you really like. So how did you take that concept from where the traditional audiobooks are narration and I don't want to say monotone because there's some good narrators out there, but what gave you the idea that, you know, we're going to change this category a little bit and, and make it more of an entertainment than it is what I would call traditional education? Well, through the years of our speaking and our advising to other companies, we learned a bit about communications. And when you study communications, you learn that the way to make an impression and a memory that people won't forget, and we want our lessons to be memorable, is they create uh, connections in their brain when they hear a story but they don't necessarily create those connections that cause memory if they're just reading a list. So we knew that in order to get our, our message across, we had to use humor, we had to be clear about what was going on, and we had to put it in a story form so they could take, they could create the message in their own brain. We didn't write it down and say, this is the message we learned. We gave them the story and the example of how we learned it. So that caused them to use more of their own mind in creating uh, the scene and also in creating the outcome. And that made them remember, remember it more. So when we decided that we had to go to an audiobook for the Barefoot Spirit, we'd already made some connections in Hollywood uh, with some actors and some different people that were doing productions in Hollywood. And we started talking to them about it. And they said, I know the perfect team that you should be working with that can do this for you. And it was an acting troupe that had worked together for a number of years already. And it also included a director and a sound guy and editing. They, they were capable of doing all of that. They'd worked together before. And we said, well, that sounds like the right group. So we got to know them a little bit and found out that they shared a lot of the same uh, interests that we have. And so we worked with them. And um, we interviewed with them the various... Uh, people that would be uh, acting out the parts and we chose certain actors and the voices that were right that kind of uh, reflected more of the people that were in the book and we put together a fabulous audio book the narrator really expressed the humor in the book very well she got it all and uh and is very fun to listen to. So even though you're having a fabulous time, you're actually learning while you're laughing. <laughs> yeah. I, I just wanted to add to what Bonnie's saying. Uh, the biggest challenge is the conversion, if you will, from, you know, from principle uh, into story, and then from story into scene, and then from scene into dialogue. Because if you want to entertain somebody with a story, they have to be listening to a story. So there has to be actors and they have to be right. interacting. And we take this for granted in video because when you see video, every scene is all thought out. You know, all, all of the characters are there. The costumes are there. Uh, the this, this scene is set up. All the props are there. But with with business audio theater, which is really like theater of the mind, like uh, PBS has, you're creating the picture in the mind's eye. And so this is really experiential learning. Uh, as Bonnie says, you're participating in putting these scenes together. If somebody says, John walked into an office and pulled up a chair, your brain grows and grabs a chair from your memory. Your brain grows and grabs an office from your memory. Well, guess what? You are now working mentally to help tell the story. And this is why stories are so powerful. It's because the listeners put the story together in their mind and they fill in all of the props themselves. And so they, they now are, you know, they've got some skin in the game. So now when it comes to, remembering the story, they remember the principle and why the principle that's told in the story. So we, we, took the, we took our story, we broke it down into a set of scenes, and each scene portrays a certain business principle that's a truism. 
And by listening to all of these scenes, the listener walks away with a complete picture of what it took for us to build the Barefoot Wine brand with no money, no knowledge of our industry. You know, give me the playbook, basically. How did you do that? Because I'm broke too. And I, and I don't right. know it all either. So, you know, this is for the average person. And when we did barefoot. We did barefoot for the average person. And we use humor to bring humor into the wine industry. And that's what we're trying to do here into the business audio industry. Yeah, and that's that's really what I, I love about you guys and your your story. And again, you're entering into a, a whole new space that you really didn't know anything about. You're turning it upside down because you're solving a problem, right? You didn't know the answer, so you're just going to keep asking. And so, you know, it's it's just phenomenal. So I believe, Michael, we've got a clip that I'd love for you to play just to give folks a sense of the difference of what a traditional ebook or audiobook sounds like and, and what you guys have created. Okay, so here we go. This is going back to the beginning of our interview today when we talked about how we got started. So we, we asked everybody, here, here is the Michael character asking the, uh, the supermarket buyer character, who, who is played by Ed Asner, by the way. That's awesome. Michael signed in, got a visitor's badge, and waited on a small, stiff chair outside Brown's office for what seemed like half the afternoon. He sat looking down the long, cement-walled hallways, expecting a forklift to come buzzing through the office space. When Brown let him in, Michael sat in another hard folding chair in front of Brown's desk. The office was crowded with wine and spirit samples from companies hoping Brown and Lucky would carry their lines. Brown went right into his act. Say what you need to say and get out of here. My name's Michael Houlihan, and I just closed a deal with a winery to pay off some debt. I'm sitting on thousands of gallons of Cabernet and Sauvignon Blanc. When I bottle it, what should the label look like? Brown's grumpiness eased a notch. You know, Houlihan, nobody ever asked me that before. So I'm going to help you. He looked away from Michael as he said that, lest it be interpreted as friendliness. Don't make it a hill or a leap or a run or a valley or a creek. I got enough of those. I can't sell more. Don't put a flower on it. And for Christ's sake, don't make it a chateau. He was getting a little wound up. Michael figured Brown was seeing the rows and rows of identical-sounding wine brands and thinking about how much trouble he had getting them to move. Make the logo the same as the name. It has to be something familiar, something people will recognize and remember. And whatever you do, do it in plain English. Got it. Michael didn't want to get the man any angrier. He hoped Brown would pick up his wine when it was bottled. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Michael got up to leave. He had just reached the door when... Hurlan, make it visible from four feet away. She has to be able to see it when she's pushing her cart down the aisle. Now get out of here. I got work to do. All of that was gold. But that last point, the last sentence just before Brown booted Michael into the hall, would become a cornerstone of Michael and Bonnie's wine business philosophy. They just didn't know it yet. Oh, that's well, there awesome. you go. The yeah. first sales call. <laughs> And, and to your point, this storytelling, you're almost in the room, right, as they're talking about it. And, you know, one of the things that jumped to my mind is like, wow, if I was going to do this, you know, is it as difficult as it sounds to get to write a screenplay? Or is that one of the things you're working on now is to help other entrepreneurs tell their story through this platform? Yes, everybody has a story. Sometimes it's in writing. Sometimes it's just in their head. Sometimes it has no dialogue or characters. In order to do it in the way that we did it, which we believe is, is the best way to communicate, we can work with whatever that founder has. And we can create a story with dialogue and then record it. Or we can take maybe a book that's already written and has a lot of dialogue and maybe just take certain stories and certain principles that the author or the founder wants, wants to highlight and use those. So it just depends on what the person has. We're capable of working with whatever they've got to come up with something that's memorable and that people really want to listen to that will tell their story and keep their legacy alive. And uh, you also have to remember, people have a very short attention span. So that scene was a two-minute scene. So that's short enough to listen to when you're driving or jogging 
or changing your baby's diaper. And uh, <laughs> then there's another one after that, another one after that. The narrator basically ties the scenes together for you and sets you up for the next scene, uh, describes, you know, the scene and what it looks like. And then boom, you're right into the action. So um, yes, what Bonnie said is right. I think our ideal client would be somebody who has a business bio, uh, somebody who is a founder of a business and they're worried that maybe two to three generations from now, people are going to say, you know, I could work anywhere. I don't have to work here. This is just another job. And instead of just telling them, here's the coffee, here's the go-to person, here's the forms if you hurt yourself during orientation, they also say, and here is a theatrically performed audio book you can play at your leisure that will give you some appreciation for what it took to create your job and to create this business. Yes, it's a great learning tool. So we call it like an onboarding tool. It's a training tool. We think that companies of the future will use a tool like this with their employees. You know, if you were Hewlett Packard, for instance, you'd have Hewlett and Packard in the garage, right? Every day they're worried about whether their idea is going to work, whether or not the guy's going to buy it, who says he's going to buy it. And if he does, is he going to pay? Is he going to pay? So you you get to be right there with them and see the kind of turmoil and, you know, the tension that goes on, you know, the, the kind of anxiety that all founders face putting a business together. It's, it's not that solid enterprise. You know, it's funny, Bonnie and I went to the bank and we tried to get a loan to buy a house. And the bank says, we can't loan you any money. You're self-employed. You're unstable. And we said, well, what about these four people that work for us? You got, gave them loans for houses. And they said, oh, that's different. They have a good, stable job. <laughs> Isn't that so, that so is founders banking you know, in a nutshell, right? <laughs> yeah. So founders have to, you know, go from instability to stability. And that's what everybody faces who starts a business. And employees see how they fit into the team when they realize what the founders went through. They understand more about the principles. They feel involved. They feel like they're part, more a part of the company and they're part of the whole story. And that way, it makes them more loyal. Yeah, we actually interviewed a guy who worked for another company. And during the interview, we said, now, listen, I know you're a technical guy, but uh, that business that you work for, they failed. He says, oh, that was the sales guy's fault. I don't have anything to do with sales, he says to me. And I said, well, thank you for applying it barefoot. Good luck in your career. (laughs) Because everyone in our company had to do with sales. They were either in sales or they were in sales support. And there wasn't anything else. So we called it a two-division company. You were either in sales or you were in sales support. You know, the third choice was you're working for a competitor and we'll help you get the job. (laughs) I love that. That's a great approach. I think more companies, I think, to your point, need to adopt that type of philosophy. If you don't think you're in sales, probably in the the wrong company, right? It could be. Uh, That's awesome. You know, these companies today, they're they're getting so big and they're getting so uh, diversified and the divisions of labor are becoming so strict that now they're silos and, you know, people aren't talking to each other. You know, what do you call it, Bonnie? Well, it's uh, nothing's moving, so we call it corporate constipation. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> I yeah. spent half of my career in the corporate side, and you are 100% correct. <laughs> so we're hoping that this tool will, you know, remove some of that blockage and uh, get things moving again, you know, because I think when people hear a story that they can identify with and they go, oh, you know, the founder of our company wasn't really wearing a Superman outfit. He didn't really have a cape. He was just a poor guy like me. And, you know, he was hand to mouth and credit cards out and uh, his wife was yelling at him and, you know, the kids are screaming. He's got the same problems. And uh, yet he stuck to it. And that's why this business is here today. So it becomes an interesting story. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of stories and I'm trying to do a better job in, you know, my communication and content of, of telling the stories. And you know, maybe mm-hmm. what I'll have to do is, you know, circle back with you guys in 12 months to see where this business is, has taken you. I'm excited to, to see what it 
what it becomes and, you know, where it, where it takes you guys. And I know I've taken a lot of your time today and I really appreciate it. I thought this was really entertaining, engaging, and more importantly, educational. So thank you. Um, it's a good combo. I, I, I had fun. Hopefully you guys had some fun with yeah, it. Yeah, we had and, fun. And we, and we have, a, ahead, we have a present for your listeners. So Meet me to it, so notes, take it away. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a sh- in the show notes, you'll, you'll see a link that will take you to a, our first chapter in the book. You'll be able to hear the entire first chapter for free. It's about 25 minutes, so it's a good commute listen. And, uh, you know, you'll hopefully get so excited about it, you'll want to hear the rest of the book. So uh, our gift to you, uh, hope you enjoy it. Yeah, thank you. And, and I, like I said, I usually don't try to sneak ahead and read books before I interview guests, but this one I did. And I highly recommend people to pick it up because we only scratch the surface of these lessons and, and what their journey looked like. And there's a lot of value in understanding, you know, the, the path that you guys took. It wasn't always a straight line, but it ended up, you know, where you are today. So, so thank you for taking the time and sharing it. And, and lastly, what is the best way, you know, I know you work with some entrepreneurs and businesses. What's the best way for folks to reach out and connect with you if they, you want to learn more about uh, those services? They can connect with us on our website, www.thebarefootspirit.com. And all of our social is there. Okay. And I'll make sure everything's linked in the uh, show notes. Appreciate the, uh, the gift for the audience. And again, really appreciate your time today and, and you guys enjoy the rest of your day. Thank, Thank you so you, much. Brett. Take care. You've been listening to Hardwired for Growth. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit brettrainer.com. That's B-R-E-T-T followed by his last name, T-R-A-I-N-O-R dot com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.